When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. I am Wendy Van Workham, and I am the program specialist here at the museum. If you've listened to one of my podcasts before, I think I have said it that I really love my job because I am continually learning new things. Over the winter, I was looking for information about what company manufactured the knitting machines that were used in the Amazon Knitting Company. And although I didn't find that information, I did find information that is really equally as good. While digging kind of through electronic editions of the Muskegon Chronicle, I was actually able to find a ton of information about the physical building of the Amazon and when and how it was built. And so I thought it would make a fun short podcast to share with you all today. If by any chance you are interested in the actual history of the Amazon company, my colleague Patrick Horn did a podcast that was posted on February 9 of 2017 all about the company and its history. So go ahead and go back and have a listen if you want to know more of a background of the company. Today, we're just going to talk about the actual physical structure of the Amazon building. First things first, construction on the Amazon building started in 1895, and the main contractors were J.J. Connell and Company, and they made sure whenever they were talking to newspaper reporters to state very clearly that they planned to use Muskegon workmen with Muskegon-made materials, or at the very least to purchase materials through local firms here in Muskegon as much as possible. It sounds like there were at least two projects mentioned that didn't do that, one being an unnamed depot and also the courthouse. In both cases, it mentioned that a lot of unmarried out-of-town workmen came in and did all the work, and it seemed to be a rather sore topic. J.J. Connell and company also contracted out with other people. Here in Muskegon, Robert Millen was contracted to do the carpentry, and he in turn went to Man Moon and Company for the lumber, W.F. Weislogel, was contracted to do the milled work, including doors, transoms, and also sashes. I'm really sorry if I slaughtered that last name. If anybody wants to tell me how to correctly pronounce it, I'm down for that correction. The types of timber that they ordered to build the building were Mississippi longleaf yellow pine. This was a timber that was considered to be really strong and just better suited for heavy industrial building rather than, say, Michigan Norway pine. They also placed an order for Michigan white pine for flooring, as well as maple from the northern part of the state. All told, they ordered over a half million feet of lumber and timbers for the project. The roof was said to have been made of felt heavily tarred, and it was installed by an unnamed Muskegon firm that specialized in this type of roof application. Now, along with the timber and also the roof, they needed to have all sorts of iron, steel, and castings done for the metal components in the factory. Early estimates claimed that they would end up needing almost 150 tons of these things, most of which were either made here in Muskegon at local foundries or they were ordered through Muskegon vendors. 
One of the coolest things that I found was cool because I didn't know about it, but the bricks were actually locally sourced. They were sourced from the Eamon's kiln outside of Holton. And this is a brick kiln that we really don't have a lot of information on in our files. So if you know any information about it, please do let us know. It wasn't the only kiln that provided bricks. There were also some kilns in Sparta where the bricks came from for the building as well. The stones for the foundation were Sturgeon Bay rubble stone, which was limestone, and it was laid in a cement mortar. It was estimated that they would need 208 cords of stone, which arrived via ship. And at least one of those shipments arrived on Thursday, August 8th of 1895. And again, we know that because it was reported in the newspaper. We also know that there were 17 stonemasons employed in making the foundation, and according to the newspaper, they were putting in 10 hours per day. We don't have any reference to how long it took them to complete the foundation. We just know how many hours a day they were working. Now, even though the contractor was trying to really keep the workforce local, there was one thing that we know was contracted outside Muskegon, and that was the window glazing or the installation of the glass panes. On January 3, 1896, we know that the workmen from George F. Kimball and Company of Chicago and West Crosby finished their work installing the glass panes, and they left on the 1235 train. There were 10 men that were here in Muskegon, and they were supervised by H. Rootson, and the paper reported that it was actually really amazing to watch them because they were very expert at their task, and they worked really, really fast. According to the paper, they installed some 13,700 panes of glass, ranging in size from 12 by 20 panes to 12 by 18 inch panes. We also have a reference to the electrician, who was A.D. Campbell, and that reference comes on January 16, and the report was that he had returned from Chicago the previous Friday, ordering wire for the factory's lights. They planned on having 600 bulbs in the main part of the building and the dye house, and initially, they were planning to use electricity from the Muskegon Electric Light Company until the fall when they would have their own plant installed to produce electricity on site. In January on the 28th of the same year, 1896, the story in the newspaper gives us an idea of the layout of the building and what departments were on what floor. So I'm going to try to go through this slow. It's a little confusing if you're not like standing and looking at the building, but you'll get the idea. The basement was a warehouse on one end and a drying and finishing room on the other where goods were stretched while damp so that they would get their shape, their final shape. There was also a section of the basement that was dedicated to the finishing department. On the second floor, they were bundling and labeling and packing. On the third floor, four of the six carding machines had already been in place, and this was also where eight spinning machines were going to be later installed. The fourth floor was dedicated to the knitting machines that would turn out gloves, mittens, and hosiery. And on the fifth floor would be the palming and shirting departments. In addition to the main building, an annex was built, and that annex only had three floors. The first floor would be the fulling, dyeing, and scouring departments. Fulling is kind of like felting where you take wool and you felt it just a little to tighten up the weave. Um, scouring is washing or degreasing the wool. The second floor of the annex would be the picking rooms, one for wool and one for cotton. On the third floor was a storage room for stock. This article also mentioned that the offices for the company were on the southwest corner of the building on the first floor adjoining to the large tower. Now, one of the really cool things that came up when I was reading about the building is when it was built, it was actually heated by a hot air heater that was in the basement. And it said that a fan drew air through a coil of pipes with 9,000 square feet of heating surface. The hot air was then sent through ducts to the different floors of the building. 
It also mentioned that in the summer, the process could be reversed and cool air could be drawn into the building with that fan and distributed amongst the different departments. Now, because they were reporting on just about every detail of this building, we also know that there were 23 flights of stairs installed that were six feet wide and made of maple. On February 20 of 1896, G.J. Burnham of Boston came to take control of the dyeing operation. They also started to run line shafts throughout the building to hook up the various machines to power. One interesting note has to do with the picking room that we talked about. This is where they would separate the wool, the raw wool. It helps to get the vegetable matter out of it. They also had a picker that was called a blending picker, and that was where they would put different lots of dyed wool together, and then they would blend them using that picker. Both of the pickers fed into two separate rooms, and there was a very large concern that there would be fire in these rooms. So when the building was built, they actually took big pipes from the boiler and directed them into each of those two rooms where they were storing the wool after it had been picked. And the reason that they did that was so that if there ever was a fire, they could divert steam from the boiler into that room, and they felt that the steam would penetrate the wool better to put out a fire than just dumping water on it. They were afraid that the water would just kind of shed or run off the wool, and then there may be still some flammable material smoldering in the room. So that was kind of an interesting safety element that was put on the room. The other thing that's of interest was that in that annex, along with the dye room, they actually had a laboratory, a chemical laboratory, not only to store the chemicals that were used in the dyeing process, but to also experiment, like we're assuming, to get different colors. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On March 1 of 1896, all the departments were up and running. Just a few days before this news article, they mentioned that two train cars arrived carrying the mammoth wool washing machine that would go in the annex on the first floor. The other thing that they're reporting in March is that they are looking for women to work in the factory, mostly girls 16 years and older. At this point, they already had 75 girls working in the department on the fourth floor, and some of those young women actually came from Michigan City, where the factory was before. Some of them are mentioned by name, so we know here on March 21st that Miss Maud Benhart, Ida Lamphere, Ella Brimmer, and Helen Raffle were moving to Muskegon from Michigan City. Also, according to this article, we know that along with the spinning machines on the fourth floor, there was a machinist shop. And their first machinist was R.C. Ludwig. In his shop, he had a drill press, an iron turning lathe, a milling machine, and all of these pieces of equipment were in that shop so that Ludwig or anyone who came after him working there could repair the machines and also could custom make any pieces that they might need. So it was a real asset and probably streamlined their repair process to have a machine shop in the building. A lot of people would have been really curious about this new factory going up. It was a very large factory here downtown, and so people were curious. And by April of 1896, so really the factory's been in operation for a few months at this point, 
the Amazon owners finally had to request that visitors were no longer allowed to just walk through the factory because up until this point, if you were curious, you could just walk right in and go walk around and watch everybody working. So even though they didn't let the walk-ins happen anymore, they still had open visitor hours from one to three on Thursdays so that people could come in, they could watch the machines work, they could see how it operated and everything like that. In June, we do start to get reports of the output of the factory. So by this point, they're up and running. All the equipment is installed. Everybody kind of knows their job for the most part. And they were producing 50 to 60 dozen pairs of underwear daily. The factory itself was running 12 to 13 hours. And it sounds like the carding department was really having the hardest time keeping up and making sure that all of the spinning machines had enough wool or cotton to be spinning. The departments were running on and off shifts in order to keep up with each other so that, you know, you didn't have people, you weren't paying people to just stand around, right? In May of 1898, the factory was looking to expand. They wanted to put an addition on that would be 60 feet wide by 160 feet long and five stories tall. It would be added along the west and north side along Goodrich Street. They were also going to build a new brick warehouse that was going to be 58 feet by 118 feet north of the building that connected the addition to the dye house on the northeast end of the factory. They didn't stop there. They also wanted to put another addition, 36 by 28 feet, onto the boiler house so that they could add another battery of boilers and that would double the plant's capacity. These additions were going on in small part to house the men's underwear branch, Up until this point, the factory had really been specializing in women's and children's underwear, so they wanted to add this new department. They wanted to expand all the current departments, and they were also making a shift to mercerizing their cotton yarn. And when you mercerize cotton yarn at a certain point during the production process, you're stretching it, and you're doing that because you get a really nice, shiny, silky, lustry yarn, which was kind of sought after. It's just very, it gives a very pretty finish to the cotton yarn. In 1898, in November, they were reporting that the machinists in the machine shop were actually custom making these machines to help stretch the cotton yarn, which is pretty cool. I haven't been able to find any information on any patents or anything that the machinists held, but they were just making something custom to work in this factory. And at the time of the article in that November time period, they already had four of those machines up and running and they were making more. In May of 1899, a cloakroom was added to the factory inside, and it said there were racks for 150 wheels, which I assume are bikes, and they had cloak fixtures. Now, interestingly enough, we have a picture that says it's the cloakroom, and you can see bikes hanging along the wall in it, and you can see cubbies that appear to have, like, coats or things in them as well. By 1901, we're seeing still more changes to the factory. They were discontinuing their dye operation, and instead the dye house was being converted into raw cotton storage, and the picking house would change into an opening or a laper room, so kind of where they're finishing inspecting and folding the fabric, I think. Um, When I looked up what a laper room was, that's kind of what it seemed to be. The article also referenced the capacity of the factory, and with the changes that they were talking about, they were producing in excess of 15,000 pounds of cotton yarn per week. 1902 saw yet another addition of 7,000 square feet of space. It wasn't a square addition, but if you had squared it up, it would be roughly 164 by 42 feet. 
It was planned that it would be a bleaching room. And again, this was just a single story high addition and it was on the east side of the building. They actually had to remove a frame building that was already there to accommodate this brick addition to the Amazon's campus. The last kind of difference that I found in the building was noted in 1909. And it was just the fact that the tower on um, the Amazon building received a new slate roof. In this article, it also made mention of the fact that that same tower had been struck by lightning. Um, So I don't know if that caused damage and needed a new roof or if it just needed a new roof and they were just letting people know that it had been struck by lightning. Like it seemed like it had happened a while ago before they fixed the roof and then they fixed the roof. So not right away. Now, when you think about how big the Amazon building is, Like I said, you have to use your imagination because the way that it looks now wasn't the way that it looks in the beginning. And it's also missing a lot of those annexed buildings, the storage house, this extra bleaching room, all of those extra buildings were kind of taken off. It was a massive complex that was here in Muskegon. And the newspaper of July 22, 1903 really gives us a good idea of what that might have looked like. They were talking about the capacity and the output of the factory. So I'm just going to read you some of the statistics that showed up in that newspaper article. The Amazon, as it's been conducted, makes 6 million garments per year. To do this, it consumes the following. 8,182 miles of edging. 7,954,545 miles of yarn, 3,347 miles of webbing. They also took the time to mention that when you think about that, it would take one person knitting 360 million hours to make the web used in the underwear department alone. This would take the Amazon company's workforce and that knitting department, working by hand, 12 million hours to make. With the aid of machinery, this work was done by the current workforce in the knitting department in about 3,000 hours. So that really just kind of gives you an idea what a difference the Industrial Revolution made in the ability of people to produce a massive amount of product. If you think about all of that material that was produced and all of that time that was saved by using the machines, you start to see why people thought that that was just really revolutionary. Now, sadly, the Amazon company did not survive past 1943. That was the year that the company ceased operations. World War II just made it too hard to get the raw materials and also the workforce that they needed to continue operations. In 1982, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And then in 2001, work was started to convert the building into apartments and also some commercial space. This building is just a really, really cool centerpiece of downtown, and we're very happy to have it. Not only is it architecturally interesting, but the story of the changes in our community also make it really interesting. For a very long time, the Amazon was one of the larger employers of people here in Muskegon. I hope you enjoyed this kind of deep look at the Amazon building and how it was built. And if you have any questions, please let us know. This is by far not all of the information that's probably out there on the building. Um, But the next time you go past, take a close look and see if you can't envision what it would have looked like when it was in operation and how busy and noisy of a place it probably was. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. We hope you enjoyed this closer look at the Amazon, and we hope that you'll listen to another episode real soon. 